Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Tonight's episode is dedicated to one of our primary inspirations, legendary paranormal radio broadcaster and creator of Coast to Coast AM, Art Bell. In his inimitable style, he passed away on Friday the 13th of April 2018. Art proved to the world that there were people out in it who wanted to know more about the strange and unexplained, and he was the vanguard who cut a path through the darkness that we, and so many shows like ours, now use to find our way. We'll observe a few moments of silence after this announcement in honor of him. Godspeed, Art. We'll see you on the other side. Tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, Blue Apron, and our contributors at Patreon.com. This series has shown that Resurrection Mary is one of Chicago's most famous residents. Wandering along the side of empty roads, picked up hitchhiking by many, and even driven to her destination by a few, eyewitness accounts bear strikingly similar details of her appearance and behavior. Is she just some relic of an old urban legend seen by hopeful people looking to make a connection with the other side? Or is Resurrection Mary more than that? Is she really there, or has some strange thought form infected our reality? What if we told you there are stories like the ones about her from all over the world? Maybe Mary represents something more than one individual. Maybe her presence is some kind of warning. Or maybe... This is all just a big misunderstanding. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. She didn't put her thumb out or nothing like that. She just looked at my cab. She was a looker, a blonde. I didn't have any ideas or like that. She was young enough to be my daughter. 21, tops. An anonymous taxi driver, after encountering Mary in 1979, as told to Chicago Suburban Tribune columnist Bill Geist. Join us tonight for part three of our four-part series on Resurrection Mary. And we're back. Thanks to everyone who's been writing in about Resurrection Mary. We've really been enjoying those emails, and we're actually going to start tonight's show out with some of those. A quick reminder, we're going to be in Ohio for the Kent Paranormal Weekend on April 27th, 28th, and 29th. So if you're in the area, come on by. We have a presentation at 5 p.m. on Saturday, the 28th, and then we're doing a Q&A at 2 p.m. on Sunday, the 29th. We are working on some new larger coffee mugs in a new design, so bear with us on that and keep your eyes on our store for updates to the merchandise. 
And as always, thank you for supporting our sponsors. Between that and our wonderful Patreon supporters, we can pay our bills and keep the show free. Oh, and we're not big on birthday shout-outs, but this one seems important since it's actually today. Meaning the day we're recording this. <laughs> Happy, Happy birthday, birthday, Tess. Tess. Astonishing Legends would only be a shadow person of itself without you. Well, I guess before her, the show was a, a hulking, black, scary thing in the corner nobody wanted to address. <laughs> yeah. By the way, Can't Get Enough of Us is eight hours on Resurrection Mary, leaving you with an empty feeling in the pit of your stomach. Well, guess what? We sat down a week or two ago with Chris Williamson of Chasing Earhart for episode 37 of his podcast on her. That episode was published on April 8th of 2017 and is titled The Astonishing Legend of Amelia Earhart. A conversation with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. We're proud to say that in their 37 episodes, we're the longest one so far by 13 minutes and the first guests that have forced them into a two-parter. That's how we roll. Both parts of our sit-down with Chris are now available. In the first part, we talk extensively about all of the ongoing hypotheses regarding her disappearance and how Forrest and I's opinions on them have evolved in light of new information that's come out since we did our own series on her back in November of 2014. In the second part, we talk a great deal about the paper Dr. Richard Jantz recently published making worldwide news where his findings indicated that the bones found so long ago on the island of Nicomororo are a 99% match for Amelia. We shared our questions and observations on that paper, and that episode, which is part two of our session with Chasing Earhart, will be followed by their own interview with Dr. Jantz himself, which is going to be dropped within hours of the release of tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends. Now, I know this isn't everyone's cup of tea, but thanks to Chris and his team, we've become insiders in the ongoing search for Amelia's plane and her and her navigator's remains. And we're at that point where we're just starting to gain access to knowledge that we can't share publicly at this time. But let's just say there is so much more to this mystery than you can possibly imagine. And we're excited to be ongoing observers on the inside now. There are multiple concurrent investigations exploring her disappearance, and we can guarantee there's going to be a lot more fascinating news about it all during the next year or two. Thank you, Chris, for bringing us into the fold. We're like kids in a candy store. <laughs> so if you're an aviation mystery aficionado, or even if you aren't, because there's so much more to this than that, carve out some time and listen to our two-part interview, as well as the eminently more qualified Dr. Jantz's interview, by subscribing and downloading Chasing Earhart wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we've got a lot to get to in part three of our series on Resurrection Mary, so let's hitch a ride to the cemetery. We've been getting a ton of emails and a lot of feedback, not only from people who are Chicago Southwest Siders, but people from all over the world as well. And they're writing in about their own regional versions of Mary, as well as Chicagoans telling us about what's really going on down there. Yeah, there's a lot more activity in Chicago than just Mary, frankly. Yeah. I think you're going to find that probably in any city as large as Chicago with such a storied history that, especially along trade routes that developed all the industry and, and trade that it did over the years, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of history, and there was history there back to the dawn of humanity. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. There just seems a lot more yeah. <laughs> in this area, yeah. I gotta say. Uh, yeah. yeah, next time I go, I definitely want to get down to the uh, southwest side, I gotta tell you that. Oh, certainly, yeah. No, no, and we've been invited by some of our listeners, too, to come on down there. Uh, yeah, we got all kinds of connections yeah. now. Um, well, one of them, Frank Welliver, who's one of our listeners, grew up in Chicago and said that when he was a kid, everyone he knew used to go to the Bachelor's Grove Cemetery 
off the Midlothian Turnpike in southwest Chicago. It's pretty small, but apparently it's insanely haunted. List some of the things that are going on there. Yeah, this place is famous. There's a picture that was taken there that a bunch of our listeners have probably seen and don't even realize it's from that cemetery. One of the things that people see there is the classic sort of black dog. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the black dog, the symbol of death. There's so many black dog stories. And also that great song by Nick Drake. Mm. Black eyed dog. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Not very good. (laughs) Uh, Leave it at that. Yeah. (laughs) Leave it at that. There is a lady in white. Mm -hmm. Sometimes she can be seen walking around with a baby in her arms. Oh, sounds like something coming up later. There's ghostly monks. Oh, yes. Uh, Richard Crow, I think, was one of the first to identify them or record it as a local folklore legend. Yeah. And then there's a farmer with his plow horse. Uh, apparently he died in a farming accident or a plowing accident. Sure. I'm not, I'm opening the door here for some historical angry emails. So oh, I'm not exactly sure how you get killed with a horse plow. Oh. I, mean, I guess if you got in front of it, well, but you, I don't get you, you know what the one of the most dangerous occupations is, especially for your kids, is farming. Yeah. People, no, I get that. You, you can die. Well, you can get dragged, you can get trampled, you can get kicked. Yeah, I've, known, kicking, uh, I've, I've heard of people getting kicked in the head by a horse and dying. Yeah, 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 sure. So there you go. Yeah, okay. very dangerous occupation. Yeah, so... But thank you, because we need food. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But now with the machines, it's even more dangerous. Here's mm. another one that's really great. Apparently, people would also see, this is at the Bachelor's Grove Cemetery, a phantom farmhouse. I kind of love this. So it, it would be shimmering and floating, and then as you walked up to it or towards it, it would shrink way down and vanish. Mm-hmm. which is like, talk about looking back in time or some kind of time slip. That's yeah. that's pretty fascinating to me. But the thing that Batchers Grove is most famous for is a photograph that was taken there by a woman named Judy Fells back in uh, 1991. And she took this picture on infrared film using a 35 millimeter camera from the 80s, as how she described it. And she's a clairvoyant. And she went there with the Ghost Research Society, which is a group that we've mentioned before because Dale Kaczmarek is a prominent figure in that group. And they have a lot of amazing stuff about Chicago area ghosts. And they've been around for a long time. And I guess she went there along with some other people. And they were just kind of taking pictures and trying to record things where they felt something, these people who were sort of empathic. And so she took this one shot And there was nothing there when she took the picture, but when she got home and she developed this infrared film, you could clearly see a woman in white sitting on a part of one of these headstones. This is a famous picture. It's all over the internet. If you just look up woman in white sitting on a headstone on Google, this picture comes up. It is from Bachelors Grove Cemetery, and it's her photo. It's pretty amazing. So that's something that's really fascinating to me. And this image was actually published in the Chicago Tribune at one point, and it's considered one of the more prominent images of something like that. It's not a bunch of orbs. It's not something Mm. vague and hard to define. It's definitely not a camera error. It is a person sitting there. And so obviously we have to take her word for it that she didn't stage it or put somebody in the shot. But the person, you can see through them and you do not see movement. And on a 35 millimeter film camera, that can be a tricky thing to do unless there was some fakery in terms of the processing of the film, because she would have had to take two different images and put them together, which you could ascertain. It's possible. Stuff like that has been attempted before with darkroom tricks. Back, yeah, that's what back I mean, darkroom yeah, It wouldn't be in, in camera. Well, you could do, yeah, partial exposures. There's all kinds of mechanical things you can do. But what you're saying is this seems to be authentic. Yes. And can you find us a copy to place on the website? Absolutely. It's okay. all over the internet. Very good. A billion people have already stolen it, so why not us? <laughs> Sure. I think what's really interesting about Welliver's letter to us, or email to us, I should say, is that it seems like that place is a little bit of a rite of passage for folks because it's so haunted. And as Fell said, you can go in 
not being a believer, but you're going to come out a believer. So that's a place I'd like to check out. And next up, we have a letter from a listener and fellow podcaster. Ah, uh, yes. Ken Lanius or Lanius, we're still waiting to hear back which one it is. Yeah, we're not sure. We listened to a bunch of episodes of his show, and he all he says is, this is Ken. Well, so. we, didn't, we, we, didn't, we didn't have time to listen to all of them or all the no, way through. No, so, uh, but uh, his yeah. show is called The Real Booze Podcast, and real is spelled R-E-E-L, like a movie reel. Yeah, and, uh, films pretty funny. and drinks. Yeah. And I wish we had chosen that genre. To a drinking, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. But no, he does a great job, and he grew up in that general area known as Forest Park. Now, it's a suburb. Uh, I think it's just under 10 miles, 9.7 miles north of Resurrection Cemetery. Thank so, you for your specificity. There you go, because I just looked it up yesterday, and I was amazed that I could remember that. Yeah, very good. If, very you, good. if you take streets. Yes. Uh, I don't know about the crow flying and all that. But anyway, it's, it's just north of there, so it's part of that area. Well, he sent us his exact street address, and he said, Well, he, where in, he grew up, yeah. Yeah, and he said, zoom in on this map, and he says, <laughs> see all these green fields? Yeah. Those are all bodies. Yeah, that's no, <laughs> that ain't fields. Well, they are kind of. They yeah. are fields of stone. Yeah. Uh, because it's all cemeteries. And Forest Park, there are so many cemeteries around the area. They call it what? The village of cemeteries. Yeah. Because there's like 30 dead people for every living person there. Yeah. But it looks nice. It's very green. So yeah. he grew up in that area and wanted to let us know, you know, what it was like and why it seems to be so haunted. Yeah. And I think he's in Phoenix now. Yes, but, that's right. He, yeah, yeah. Now he lives in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. I love and, Phoenix. Uh, but yeah. He I couldn't saying, live there. It's too hot. In the summertime? Yes. Lovely in the winter. But here's the, the point. It's a dry though. heat. It's... <laughs> That's what everyone says. But <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to tell you what, 120 in the yeah. shade still feels like 120. That's true. It's just but not bright. You're from North Carolina, <laughs> so you're used to humidity. Yeah. But he, having grown up there, gave us the address of his house. So you could Google Street View and look at where he grew up and where it relates to the areas and all the other cemeteries. So, But he had some other funny things to say. He's very, they're humorous in their podcast. Yes. They're a lot of fun and funny. Uh, he mentioned there's a chemical plant that was there and still there, I think still operating. Well, the company's still around. That's which right. Is why I struck their name from our script. <laughs> Very good thinking. <laughs> uh, but what's interesting is that they would have the occasional chemical spill and they would have to actually evacuate parts of the neighborhood for several hours at a time. I love how you framed that. The occasional chemical spill. Well, like, you know, happens. I let, yeah. Look, I, I worked down in Torrance. I knocked your uh, trash can over. <laughs> <laughs> I, worked, I worked down in uh, uh, in Torrance near the uh, Exxon Mobil plant there. Yeah. And occasionally they would announce that there's some fumes coming your way. You might want to stay inside. Yeah. Occasionally they would Does announce, it, run away. Yeah. <laughs> Don't come back till we tell you. We were waiting for that. But yeah. uh, living near any large factory, those things can happen. And so yeah. his 12 and 13 year old mind at the time thought, wait, spilled chemicals, cemeteries, what does it mean? Zombies. It's the perfect recipe. <laughs> you got to have zombies. Just heat and serve. Right. <laughs> so he's a little worried about that. But other than that, from what he described, it was very natural to just cut through the cemetery on your bike. Yeah, shortcuts. To take shortcuts. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going around huge swaths of land. So, Spielberg, Spielberg yeah. style. Why? I'll meet you at the mall. <laughs> I'm just going to cut through here. <laughs> the only thing worse than moving uh, the headstones and not the graves is mixing a chemical spill with a cemetery. Ah, yes. Well, uh, tell us about PRB.org. Well, 
<laughs> they have a very pretty website, but the name is a little conspiratorial. Yeah. The Population Reference Bureau. Oh, you like that. I, well, I got interested in how many dead people there might be in the whole world. Yeah. And then I wanted to look it up. And so this is a website I went to, prb.org. Uh, they estimate there are more than 108 billion members of our species that have been born throughout history. Right now, there are 7 billion people living. That means there's 15 dead people for every person alive. Of course, that's dead people going all the way back to caveman times. Mm. I was wondering if there's so 15. A, a guesstimation. That, yeah, yeah. A guesstimation. But that should mean that we all have like 12 spirit guides, right? If every everybody's hanging out. No, don't start doing the math on that. People want to know where all the ghosts go. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know how it works? Because uh, we should I, I do just, another podcast about it. I think that would be popular. Yeah, I think people just, that's one question. It's like, well, all the dead people, where are all the, what I'm going to say is it's not a finite thing to know. Yeah. Or an answer. Okay. Or, or something to reason with our current logic. Let me put it that way. All right. However, uh, as Casey would say, Edgar Casey, the dead are all around us. You just can't see them. Yeah. But he could. Yeah. So there you go. All right. That's a big ratio of the dead to the living in Forest Park, Illinois. I'm excited about this new course we're on over at the Great Courses Plus. Maya to Aztec, Ancient Mesoamerica Revealed. You know, those are cultures I've always been fascinated by, not only because of all the advances in astronomy and architecture and the mystical elements we've all heard about, but I'd like to know more about how they're related to each other, and especially about the other distinct cultures in the region that never got as much press. We definitely have some Mesoamerican mysteries in the story folder, but for now, I just always like hearing a few facts about a subject I didn't know about right at the beginning of a series. Like, did you know the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan had an opera house, a zoo, and even an aquarium? Or that the Maya hieroglyphic script is one of only five original writing systems on our planet? Uh, you know, I knew a couple of those things, but not the rest. Most people probably lump those cultures in together, but there were actually a lot of significant differences between the Maya and the Aztec. Aztecs. Like for starters, they flourished in very different time frames. The Maya have been around since at least 4000 BC, but the Aztecs less than 300 years. And although they were neighbors, their territories were different as well as their political organization and their language. The Maya had at least 29 different languages, but the Aztecs only spoke one. On the other hand, they shared a lot of similarities, like the way they built temples and pyramids, or their tools, foods, calendars, and gods, and of course, their fondness for human sacrifice. Ouch! <laughs> well, if you're lifelong learners like we are, we know you're going to love streaming The Great Courses Plus 2, which is why we encourage you to take advantage of this special limited-time offer for our listeners— a whole month of unlimited access to enjoy this and any of their fantastic lectures for free. That's right. But to get this special free month offer, you need to sign up through our special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Yeah, do it today and start being fascinated. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Hi, I'm Will. And I'm Lauren. And we're from Minnesota. And when we're not ice fishing. And listening to Prince. We're listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, so this next letter comes from Tim Stafford. He actually sent us a couple of emails. This is one of the best ones that came through. For we actually featured some of the things that he was talking about in part two. Yes, we did. Yeah, so he's back with an update. Yeah, and this is some good stuff. It relates to some of that stuff we talked about in part two. And it, because here's the thing, Tim, being the first person we're probably going to visit when we go there, because <laughs> he's right across from the Irish legend bar that we talked about, formerly known as the O'Henry Roadhouse, 
the haunted companion structure to the O. Henry Ballroom, which later became the Willowbrook Ballroom, right? Exactly. That's right across the street, or was, before it burned down in 2016. Yeah, and from what I glimpsed on the website, it looks like they make a pretty good Reuben, Ooh. which is, I, I think I've said That's before. Your that is, well, I, I try that at every place I go if they offer it. Yeah, he forces my gauge. Forrest says, uh, Scott will always get a wedge salad. Forrest <laughs> is the one that will get the Reuben. We're, Gotta we're, get my wedge. <laughs> <laughs> when we're in the area, we're heading there first because we definitely have to check that out. And yes. uh, all of the lore about that building specifically and that avenue. Well, he was talking about the tunnels. You know how we mentioned uh, the Irish Legend Bar had these tunnels underneath it? Yeah, actually, this clears up a question we had, which he locked onto there and had an answer for us. Yeah, he was talking about the tunnel because we had said there was one tunnel that we thought went to a mausoleum. We couldn't figure it was to dispose of bodies. or And then we couldn't figure out by looking on the map where there would be a mausoleum because it was too far from Resurrection Cemetery. Right. But what it was near was this Fairmont Cemetery, which was down the road about 800 feet, maybe. Yeah, now I, I looked on uh, the map, of course, Google Maps, and that was the closest thing. So that was my guess, is that I think it's kind of south of there, yes. or due south. You could but tunnel straight in. down the road. Right. What I didn't know or was sure about is like, what building would you pop out of? Well, this is what Tim said. The tunnel from the Irish legend was told to lead to a tomb in Fairmont Cemetery, which was the one we were talking about. Supposedly, you could hear music playing from it. Some people thought it was ghosts. Others said it was just music from the speakeasy and that patrons would exit through the tomb if the speakeasy was raided, which ah. is brilliant. I gotta, <laughs> gotta love that. Speakeasy gets yeah. raided, cemetery down the road, drunk people pouring out of it. <laughs> <laughs> which is enough to frighten anybody. But there's two good things about it. One is, of course, the escape route. That's fun. Yeah. Secondly, though, it's an interesting possible explanation for hearing strange things. That's true. Now, I don't discount, well, you know me, if you've been listening, that I keep an open mind about this stuff. I don't discount anybody's experiences, but you also look for possible real-life explanations that are mundane, you know, the pedestrian yeah. kind of things. And if there's haunting music coming out of a, a building, let's say, where there should be silence, that might be an explanation. Well, I mean, this was a pretty brilliant ruse if this actually yeah. happened, because this is right up there with Walter White and uh, Jesse going into the house that's getting <laughs> bug-bombed, right? right? No right. one's going in there. Right. No one wants to be in there. And yeah. if anything does happen in there, people are going to report it, like you said, music or something like that. And he went on to say about the story that the tunnel would have had to have been long and a tunnel to the woods would make sense, except the land rises pretty quickly and steeply, so the tunnel would have to be very high or, again, very long to pop out on the other side of the hill. He went on to say that the tomb in question was eventually a victim of arson and has since been torn down. No word on whether or not they found anything underneath. The cemetery, the Fairmont Cemetery, is now very well taken care of and is actually a popular walking spot, so... Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it is lovely around there. And as we maybe mentioned in part two, that was the original draw for the early inhabitants in the mid-19th century is that it's a lovely wooded area and people would go have picnics there. So so development happened there. That kind of sparked it. It quickly turned into uh, too much frivolity in the roaring 20s and 30s. But now we get to the best part for me about his email update. Well, you may remember that we mentioned the Grime Sisters, that horrible unsolved murder where the two girls had gone out to see the Elvis movie and never came home. And then there were all these ghost stories about people seeing them around town, them calling telephones and that sort of thing. One of the things that we mentioned with that story was that there was an abandoned house that was associated with the crime that supposedly was abandoned in a hurry shortly after their bodies were discovered. And all these rumors about food being on the table, brand new car in the garage, kids' toys being around, and no word really on who that person was in the house. Well, Tim has an explanation and a personal story connected to that. So here's what he told us about the house. Quote, 
the quickly abandoned house in the Grimes sisters' story wasn't torn down until almost 2000, and the land is now a subdivision with multi-million dollar and probably super haunted McMansions. I did venture into the house a few times in high school. I never saw anything firsthand, but I did hear mysterious whispers coming in and out of every unoccupied room when my friends decided it would be a great place to play Ouija board. There were five of us, and no drugs or alcohol were involved. My friends wanted to contact the Grimes sisters, but failed. Instead, a spirit on the Ouija board claimed to be the owner of the house and the killer of the Grimes sisters. It told my friend John to go upstairs alone, and it would show itself. After much coaxing, John agreed to climb the extremely narrow staircase to the solitary room upstairs, as long as we all followed behind. Once John reached the landing, he looked into the room that was only about 10 feet by 10 feet and lit by moonlight from a single window. I could not see the room, but I could see John's face. He looked in the room begrudgingly, then his eyes widened. After a second or two, he jerked around and steamrolled us down the stairs as we sprinted out of the house, through the surrounding cow pasture, and into the car. John would not say anything until we were far from the house and back into civilization. When he calmed down, he told us what he saw. He was looking at the corner of the room that was darker than the rest of the room, as corners are wont to do. He described it like this. I was looking at the shadow in the corner. Then the shadow stood up. It started coming towards me, and that's when I bolted. For a year or so afterwards, John experienced sleep paralysis and swore he could feel something sitting on him in the middle of the night. He could hear and feel it breathing, but he could never look at it. He experienced it at his nearby home, at college, and at his girlfriend's house in Ohio until it just finally left him alone. You know, I generally think of our listeners as being pretty smart folks. Hmm. I cannot say that about Tim Stafford. Well, because of the Ouija board. I, you do messing. not mess around with Ouija boards. Well, and you're you younger. definitely yeah. don't do it in the abandoned house associated with the murder of two young girls. I don't know. I would be curious enough to attend that. There again, there. See, you're in there. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to yeah. be at the budget suite well, up, the, up the street watching old Ray Donovan's. You can come tell me about it. <laughs> it doesn't matter where you are. Haven't you learned that? Well, I'm just saying the Ouija board, I'm just going to say this. Yeah. It's a door. You can open a door there that you think is closed, but turns out it's not latched. Yeah, well... Uh, Just remember that. Yeah, they say that. Well, always, here's a tip. And always, I'm a skeptic. Always say goodbye. Close out the session is what they say. Yeah. Don't mess with them in the first place is what a lot of paranormal investigators will tell you to begin with. But now I have known people who use them all the time and think it's fun in the Parker Brothers family night game fashion kind of way. I probably wouldn't recommend it because you can get kind of a uh, a sunburn on your uh, your soul. I think the risk comes in if you're using it with someone who actually believes in the possibility of something happening. If you're yeah. a non-believer, you can play with it all you want. No, no. As we've said before, stuff happens to non-believers as well. You just completely shut me down. Yeah, I am. Because <laughs> um, See, I don't think no, that. No. I believe if uh, you don't have faith, you're safer in that situation. What about the old quote, not believing in the devil won't protect you from him? Well, I well, that believe was from a, that. Well, that was uh, Anthony Hopkins from the movie The Right. But yeah, that's I, a I movie. Re- that's a screenwriter. Love- Someone like Rich Haddam wrote that. What I'm saying yeah. is, no offense, Rich, I think if you're 
in that, oh, we're kids and it's fun. I'm going to push it a little bit and yeah. the other kids pushing it around and it's a Ouija board and that's yeah. maybe that's a little bit safer than if you got someone there who's a little scared, that's even more of an attraction for a thing to come through the door. That's uh, all I'm saying. I think you'd be wrong. I'm, I'm right. going to disagree with you just well, because I've heard disagree. a lot of stories where people didn't believe in that kind of stuff and were poking around and then quickly came to believe it later, especially people who got actually pretty angry and upset yeah. because they didn't believe it and uh, you can't explain it and then that sets you off. So I will say, I think from that angle though, from what we've heard of people having some kind of spirit attachment, sometimes if it seems demonic, the explanation will be that people of zero faith or even a naughty disposition, you're less of a favored target than somebody who is pious and religious because you're harder to turn. Right. You're a bigger prize. Again, not that this does not happen to people who are not religious, because I want to dispel that myth. And people perpetuate that, and they think that. We've had letters, it's like, well, I don't believe in God, so none of this stuff should affect me. There's a lot of people who thought that way at first. No, I'm not saying that, that about the broad spectrum. I'm yeah. just saying it about the Ouija board. I feel like the more faith you have, the more dangerous it is. That's what I think. Yes. Well, let's get to our next email here. Okay. Joseph Wisniewski. Oh, you said it right. I think I said it right the first time. You went off on a, on a tangent there. No, but, uh, you told me it was Wisniewski <laughs> the first time, uh, and then I had to no, do a pickup to fix it. Okay, well, that That's was... That's what happened, because no, no. I'm the one that did the pickup. It was a related it. name. We misspoke about that, well, but... Well, I had a long chat with him today. Yeah. On text. Yeah. And he said the easy way to remember it. Are you ready? Yeah, go ahead. All right. It's whiz like you're taking one, new like you bought it, and ski like you're going down a hill. <laughs> whiz new ski. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> I'm sure he's had to explain it so many times. Like, you just want to come up with a good, fun way to explain it. Yes. And put an end to it because you're going to get so many different pronunciations. Indeed. Well, when we interviewed author Adam Sulzer in part two of our series, Scott briefly mentioned an email that had come in that day from Joe Wisniewski about his dad, Richard, who was a Chicago cop. Yes. Back in the day. You know, stand-up tough guy, everything you picture about a hardworking Chicago police officer back in a dangerous, 1970s. dangerous time. Yeah, it was a dangerous time. And what Joe had said, he had said some more stuff in that email than came out when I was talking to Adam, and Forrest wanted to make sure that we got this into the show. So uh, I'm going to call this Resurrection Wisniewski, because even <laughs> though we brought it yeah. we brought it up in the last episode, there's more. One of the things that he said in his email to us was, I was listening to your recent podcast on Resurrection Mary, and my father, a Chicago cop, used to tell a story about when he picked her up in his squad car one night in the mid-1970s while he was driving home. He saw this girl walking alone, and it was cold out. So being a good cop, he pulled over and told her he wasn't going to let her walk home in that kind of weather with so little on. She obliged and hopped into his squad car, giving him an address, which he drove to. And just as he was about to drop her off, she faded away. My dad didn't frighten easy, but it shook him for the rest of his life, which incidentally ended a few years after that. Now, after we mentioned Joe's story on the air, he actually wrote in again, adding a little more information. And I thought this was pretty fascinating. Contacted my sister to hear her version of what she remembered of the story, and she repeated it back to me. And she also said my father was talking to this girl the whole way to the cemetery, which apparently where she asked to go. My sister said she thought it was late October or early winter when this happened. And what I find amazing is that Mary apparently spoke to him and they had a conversation. She explained to my father that she wasn't in any trouble. She just had to get home and thanked him for giving her a ride. Then he said she gave him turn-by-turn -turn directions and continued in small talk. And as he was coming up to the cemetery, 
she faded away right before his eyes from the seat next to him. After gathering himself, which he said took some time, he drove back to dispatch or the station and told the boys what had happened. And they were all like, oh, you met Mary. You're not the only one. And then they started to tell him other stories they had gathered over the years, some personal from officers like himself picking her up out of concern, and some from people who had reported their own encounters doing the same as the officers. My father came home after his shift that night, still pretty disturbed, and told my mother the story, and she believed him. Back then, it was his tradition, as well as many other officers at that time, it was the 70s, to end the night by drinking the things away they saw that day so they could face doing it all over again the next morning. But after that incident, my father actually put down the bottle for a while, starting that evening. He picked it back up again later, but I thought that was another interesting aspect of the story. It was so potent an experience to his rational policeman alpha self It was enough to make him quit the bottle for a while and ponder. So I believe he did have an experience. And it was such that it flipped his world upside down for a while in the span of his momentary existence. Thanks again, guys, and be well. Uh, Joe, that's a remarkably personal story, and it's super interesting. And having all the background on it really gives it a lot of context. And we really appreciate you sharing that, not only with us, but with our listeners and giving us permission to share it with our listeners. What I think is amazing about this, Forrest, is the idea that he went back to the station and all the other cops were like, oh, yeah, Mary. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. picked her up last week. Yeah. Well, like, they, you know, it's, they it's, know about this. Uh, people have also offered a criticism. Why should we listen to police officers or authority figures or pilots or military people? Why should we give them any more credence over regular people? I don't believe any of them. It's like, well, one— Police officers who've been on the job for a while have seen a lot, a lot of weird stuff. They are no-nonsense people. You can't be a goofball and do the job, while right. you're, at least while you're on it. I mean, yeah. a lot of them have great senses of humor, but they are no-nonsense. They are 180 degrees from woo-woo. Yeah. They don't have time for that kind of stuff. They see too much of it on their job, and they're trying to corral it, prevent it. So for them to come and say, like, no, no, this is a common kind of thing, and for his dad to come to terms with that is significant to me. Because the way he's described him, and, uh, you know, and a lot of uh, police officers, too, they're more skeptical people. They have people lying to their face all day, every day. Well, you know what I'm saying? You become very discerning and very rational about all the weird stuff you see. And when that shakes you... That, to me, means something. To paint a more thorough picture of Richard Wisniewski, I chatted with Joe for a pretty good while on text today. And one of the things that he said, super great guy, really great sense of humor, by the way. But he pointed out in our further discussion that while his dad would have a few nightcaps in the evening, he never drank on the job. He said it was just part of the culture of being a cop in the 70s in Chicago. And he also explained how it was even harder back then because there wasn't really a lot of emotional support to help you deal with with the things that you saw on a daily basis. And all that stuff kind of takes a toll over time. I think that's important, too, because it adds even more context to the story about his dad and the time that he offered Resurrection Mary a ride. Do you remember when you first heard the term Kaizen? Uh, Yeah, when we were first working with Japanese car companies. Basically, it means continuous improvement. 
We're always striving for it on this show, and we love it when we see companies we like adopting that principle too. That's so true. And you can see that with Blue Apron because they're constantly refining the recipes they offer, exploring new, fresh ingredients, listening to customer feedback on the types of meals they vote for as their favorites, and improving the ways you can have those meals delivered right to your door. And here's one improvement. You can have a two-person plan that lets you select from eight new recipes a week instead of six, and you can choose to have either two or three of them delivered. Or you can choose a family meal plan that serves four and lets you select from four new recipes a week. And you can choose to receive two, three, or four of those recipes to be delivered. These are plans that fit your tastes, your lifestyle, and your schedule. There are no restrictions, so you can choose the recipe combinations you or your family crave the most. And selecting these choices is a snap because you can do it all right from their website and choose the meal plan that's most convenient for you in your account settings. You can also change it up whenever you want. And picking the meals, well, it's pretty much like ordering off the menu at your favorite restaurant. Just listen to a couple of meals featured in April. Seared salmon and lemon lebna with frica, zucchini, and dates. And seared steaks with lemon parmesan kale and roasted potatoes. I've already had the steaks, which were great cuts and loaded with flavor. And I gotta say, with this recipe, I'm actually now a big fan of kale. Ooh, there's a surprise. (laughs) I know. Look, I never thought I'd like roasted broccoli, Mm. but Blue Apron recipes have a way of making you like everything. Now, you at home can have Blue Apron do that for you, too, and get $30 off your first order if you visit blueapron.com slash astonishing. So check out this week's menu and get your $30 off at blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right, time to get Frika. Oh, dear. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Will. And this is our 20th take. <laughs> Let's get back to the show. Okay, so that's some of the stories that we've gotten from our own listeners in the area and some of the more famous stories. And we did take a little side trip with that uh, story about Bachelors Grove, but that was a particularly interesting story as it uh, related to that photo, which is one of the most famous ghost photos you ever see on the internet, actually. No, the whole idea as we expand on the story of Resurrection Mary is that there are large areas in the suburbs south of Chicago that are very haunted and have their own stories. Yes. So we didn't want to get into it too deeply, but it paints the bigger picture that there's a lot of weird, spooky, paranormal stuff going on all around this area. Whole books have been written just on Bachelor's Grove alone by some of the people and authors we've mentioned already in part two. Well, and there's two other particularly famous cases that we wanted to mention right now at this particular point. Before we did that, we want to come back a little bit. We want to remind you about Jerry Palis. We talked about him in part one. He was the cold open of part one. That's probably the most repeated story about Resurrection Mary. That was the guy who, in 1939, he was out dancing at the Liberty Grove Ballroom, and then he met her. She was standing alone, and he went over and spoke to her, and then they danced all night long. He offered her a ride home to her house, which she had told him was on South Damon Avenue, only to have her request that they run out Archer in the opposite direction, when she suddenly demanded they stop right in front of the main entrance to Resurrection Cemetery, where she said something to the effect of, I must go, and you cannot follow. And then she ran towards the closed cemetery gates and vanished right before his eyes. It's one of the most interactive stories and more complete ones, rather than either somebody picking her up in their car and she just vanishes. So it's got a lot of interaction with it, and he was willing to come forward with it, too. Yeah. So that's kind of cemented as maybe the first and uh, biggest story about her 
to come out in the public, I guess. Yeah. That's not the only story, though, that seems to have a more prominent place in the all the tales around Mary. There is another one that we'll call the Ralph story. <laughs> yeah, well, because the guy's name's Ralph, but he didn't use his full name He either. didn't use his real name. Even the yeah, Ralph is right. a pseudonym. That's right. Yeah. So he wanted to be anonymous, which uh, I, we'll talk about that in a minute because there's something that I want to point out about that. So Ralph was this guy who was interviewed by Chicago columnist Bill Geist, who at the time was writing for the Suburban Tribune. This was back in January of 1979. I just want to point out right off the bat, I'm a huge fan of Bill Geist. Yeah. People that don't know who he is, he is actually Willie Geist, if you've ever seen him on the Today Show. That's right. He's Willie Geist's dad. And he frequently appears on the Today Show as well. You would know him the second you see him. He always has uh, super interesting stories. He's kind of a, uh, a more urban Hulehauser in a way, with some yeah. of the stories that he comes across. So it, it doesn't surprise me that he was writing this story back in 1979. Right. So I want to sum up this story that was in the uh, Chicago Suburban Tribune, or they called it the Sub-Trib back then. Yes. This story was about a 52-year-old cab driver who, as we said, wanted to remain anonymous. This is a classic blue-collar guy. He was a veteran. He was a churchgoer, a little league coach. And he told this story to Bill Geist just about two weeks after it happened. So it was very fresh in his mind. Yeah, he described himself to Bill Geist is the whole shot. I'm just the regular guy, do all the regular things, and I'm not a maniac. Right. <laughs> so he wanted to point that out. You know, I'm, I'm not crazy here, but this did happen. Right. And that always adds a semblance of truth to a story when the person that's telling it is really concerned you're going to think they're crazy. Well, a lot of, that's why a lot of people don't tell their stories, but he felt compelled in a way. But just, you know, a regular stand-up guy, there's nothing in it for him. He's not looking for notoriety in any way. And he's not writing a book. He's not making any money off this. It's the, you know, the first things that people point to, it's like, oh, well, you're trying to get some publicity for yourself. Right. So Ralph was driving out Archer and he was, quote unquote, a little lost, as Adam Selzer says in his book, The Resurrection Mary Files. I want you to listen to this segment from the original article that Adam actually quoted in his book. I dropped this big spender way the hell down in Palos Heights or Hills or someplace like that. And I was trying to make my way back to the tollway. I just turned on to Archer, down there where it's still a lonely road, especially at midnight. And there she was. She was standing there with no coat on by the entrance to this little shopping center. No coat. And it was one of those real cold ones, too. She didn't put her thumb out or nothing like that. She just looked at my cab. She was a looker. A blonde. I didn't have any ideas or like that. She was young enough to be my daughter. 21 tops. So that's how he describes when he first saw her. This is the interesting thing about that. He picked her up. He drove her out Archer, which apparently whenever he asked her about where they were going, she just said, keep going. Mm -hmm. By the way, he did say that he thought she might have been drunk or she seemed a little fuzzy or she, maybe she had smoked something. Well, I was going to point out, you can tell this is 1979. Yeah. The era because people's descriptions change with the times, of course. I can't remember how old they thought Ralph was. Middle-aged guy, though. But, you know, he's kind of, look, he's a cab driver. Again, he's seen all kinds of weird stuff. If you out there have uh, done any ride sharing, <laughs> <laughs> if you've driven for one of the two companies, you know you get all kinds of weird stuff in your car. You yeah. Know, and he's a cab driver, so he gets it routinely. But the way he described, you know, is maybe she smoked something, you know. Yeah. And she had what he described were possibly disco shoes. Yes. Dancing shoes. But yeah. at the time, disco was big then. So it's just funny how the descriptions change with the times. Well, yeah. And if she is another Mary ghost, it's funny how Mary changes. She's appropriate for whatever era she's yeah. turning up in, it seems or like. Or maybe that's how you're viewing her in your mind. 
Yeah, there there you you go. go. How Mm -hmm. much of it's in your control? But his point was just that she seemed like she was a million miles away. She was just staring out the window. And he said the only other thing that he could remember her saying was, the snows came early this year. Mm -hmm. That freaked me out for some reason. Because, (laughs) I don't know. A little Game of Thrones? (laughs) No, more in a (laughs) like, if this is a ghost, what this ghost perception of time is. If she's perpetually stuck riding back and forth to the cemetery, but she's aware that it's an early and hard winter this particular year. In a way, I guess it struck me as kind of sad because she's doomed to repeat this over and over and over ad infinitum. Right, right. I, I don't know. Just there was something about that that freaked me out. But anyway. Well, she's paying attention to the weather. That's Yeah, uh, yeah. Possibly, yeah. So they're driving down the road. Finally, she yells, stop, stop. And Ralph slammed on the brakes. And the thing was, he was like, he couldn't see a house anywhere. He was like, where? And she pointed at this small little shack. Ralph turned to look at the shack, then he looked back at her to further explain there was no house, and she was gone. These were his exact words. I looked to my left, like this, at this little shack, and when I turned, she was gone, vanished, and the door never opened. May the good Lord strike me dead, it never opened. Bill Geist found that shack. It was directly across from the main gate of Resurrection Cemetery, and Geist said that someone at the cemetery actually told him that a Polish teenager named Mary, who died in the 1930s, was buried. I don't get this, but I guess buried in that little shack. And that was all he would say in the interest of privacy for the girl's family. Richard T. Crow, who we brought up many times as the guy who had done the most work in spreading the stories about Mary and is uh, now passed away and himself a resident of Resurrection Cemetery, he told Geist he was surprised that he had even gotten that much information from the people at the cemetery. Now, this all happened on January 11th, 1979. That night, the Willowbrook, formerly the O. Henry Ballroom, had held a special singles night. This is the night that this happened. This singles night was for, to quote Bill Geist, those without escorts to come and dance the waltz and the foxtrot, just the way they did here 40 years ago. End quote. It had ended about 10 minutes before Ralph saw Mary walking up Archer Road towards Resurrection Cemetery. That's a very long walk, by the way, as we mentioned earlier. So uh, that's that story. To me, it's pretty impressive. The first thing that stands out to me is the fact that Ralph stayed anonymous for this article. It strikes me that if you're a hoaxer or you're maybe you have a kind of personality that wants to latch on to something, a big story like this and have some kind of fame, that's not how you do it. You're going to say who you are. Well, he didn't want... balloon boy it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Didn't mean to make that a verb, but now it is. So just, just <laughs> go with it. Yeah, Bill Geist couldn't call him either. Ralph said, don't worry, I'll call you. I'll yeah. let you know when I'm available to talk because he didn't want to be contacted. He didn't want a bunch of notoriety from this, where people pestering him or calling him names, not believing him, but he felt he should share the story. Yeah, so Bill Geist, being a great reporter and interviewer, kind of pulled it out of him over a a period of time. Yeah. I think a couple of meetings at least. So you don't know if that's just somebody's tactic and they're trying to make this up, but aside from that's the ghost and you've picked up, (laughs) you've picked one up, it's not that spectacular where it's, it's this overarching conspiracy that you're at the center of and all that. It's just kind of a simple, straightforward ghost story having to relate to Mary. So well, and this one has, of many. This has the classic, classic details. It yes. starts essentially at the O'Henry Ballroom, right. just two blocks from where it was. Now, although at that time, 
it had been called the Willowbrook for I think going on 20 years. I think they changed the name 1959, and this would have been 79, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. So for 20 years now, it had a different name, but that doesn't matter. So she's two blocks from there by this little shopping center. Let's say it was someone who went to that dance, and it was just a normal girl. But what she wanted was a ride out to the cemetery, and then she disappeared out of the car without him ever hearing a car door. Right. That's the part that precludes him being confused. Sure. In my opinion, because... You could say, oh, well, I drove her out this road, and then uh, I fell asleep for a minute, and when I woke up, she was gone. Okay, so you passed out. You were tired, whatever, and she got out of the car. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, that's a shack, and he looks back, and she's gone. Right, right. Well, that's a very common element, and as we go to analyze and dissect this phenomenon, we'll take a look and see why this keeps coming up a lot, and maybe not so much the reason for that, Actually, we will look at actually some story element reasons why these kind of stories form into an everlasting legend like this has. So coming up on our next famous sighting, this is the only guy who's seen her twice, right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. As far as we know. Yeah, Bob Maine, uh, who is also mentioned in Adam Selzer's book. But this is also based on a 1992, or recorded in a 1992 Chicago Tribune article, right? Yes. Yeah. And here's a quote from Selzer's book about it, actually. That book, again, is called The Resurrection Mary Files, Chicago's Most Famous Ghost Story. And uh, Selzer was our guest on part two. We interviewed him uh, towards the end of part two. Maine had seen Mary on two occasions at Harlow's, a now-defunct nightclub at 8058 South Cicero Avenue. A short drive down 79th from there would put you right at Resurrection. This was in 1973. It was the glitter rock era, said Maine, and we saw a lot of strange people, but one Friday night, then two weeks later, on a Saturday night, this woman came in. She was about 24 to 30 years old, 5'8 or 5'9, slender, with yellow blonde hair to her shoulders that she wore in these big spooly curls coming down from a high forehead. She was really pale, like she had powdered her whole face and body. She had on this old dress that was yellow, like a wedding dress, left in the sun. She sat right next to the dance floor, and she wouldn't talk to anyone. She danced all by herself with a pirouette-type dance. People were saying, who is this most bizarre chick? Maine noted that she seemed to look right through you, and she had a teardrop on her cheek that looked like nail polish. No one had seen her come in, and no one saw her leave. But the strangest thing was, even though we carted everyone who came in there, I worked the door. And there were waitresses and bartenders and people there. Nobody, either night, ever saw her come in and never saw her leave. Mm -hmm. Now, Dale Kazmarek, who we mentioned before as part of the ghostresearchsociety.org, has pointed out that Bob Maine did not connect this strange girl to Resurrection Mary until about four years later when he read an article about her. So there you go. Well, there are some also classic and oft-mentioned elements to this story and this encounter as well. Because it's a good visual description, the telling of this tale here. The fact that she looked really pale, almost so pale that her skin looked powdered. (laughs) You know, most people when they're dancing, you get a little glisteny. They say women glow. But here she looks corpse-like almost. And that is a description that gets often used and tied to Mary herself, that she was extremely pale like white powdered, and that uh, she had on this dress that may have been white at one time, 
but is faded with time and, and maybe even like it's been left out in the sun, that kind of a faded yellow. It made me think of uh, Miss Havisham, another tragic figure who uh, never fulfilled their destiny from Dickens. Yes. And the fact that it just seemed out of place, the teardrop on her cheek that seemed unreal, almost like a drop of nail polish or something acrylic. Nowadays, I would just suspect that it's uh, <laughs> a lot of the appliques that the young folks are putting on their faces. But it stood out is what the point is, that even this is the the crazy Ziggy Stardust days of glam rock and disco, there's something that caught everyone's attention because she did not seem right. And again, the other factor of this story is that was more than once. That's right, twice. Yeah. So that's not often reported. Usually this is a one-off occasion and it never happens again. And clearly he was not the only witness because he mentioned that the other people working there didn't see her come or go either, which means they all saw her there. Yeah, exactly. That's an interesting story. And then finally, here's just a short brief mention, but it kind of reiterates the other type of (laughs) run-in— pun intended, with Mary in oh, that... come on. I know, it's bad. I, did, I just thought of it, though. <laughs> uh, it's slightly organic. So the idea, though, is that there are several types of ways to meet Mary and interact with her. This is the other one we actually mentioned in part one or two, frankly, I can't remember. But you either see her by the side of the road and you pick her up, or you don't, or sometimes you see a body laying by the side of the road or just somebody dancing at the gates. Here is that scary encounter where in 1978, a young married couple was driving on Archer when the girl darted out in front of their car and they slammed on the brakes, but they knew it was too late. They were bracing for that impact, but there was no impact. I can't remember if it came with this story or not, or there was another one where some people actually hear the thud. Yeah, there are other people that have had the collision and heard the thud, but then there was nothing there. In this particular case, they never heard anything. Okay, so in this case, though, she just vaporized like they drove through her. Yeah, and she passed through the car. She passed through the a, car. Almost in a mist-like fashion. It was an old uh, X-Files where a guy was, uh, he could basically turn himself, not invisible, but he could meld with anything metal. The idea was that uh, he could pass through walls. Yeah. There were certain materials that he could uh, easily move through except for glass. So imagine what happens when you get hit by a car. Yeah. Some parts of it are glass. Yeah. I just remember that standing out to me as like, that's what it would seem like, is that this guy would just, and you go right through them. Same thing with Mary here. So anyway, that's uh, another interesting encounter, but there are tons of them in all these various forms. But again, certain elements always remain the same. When we were telling the tales of some of the more famous encounters, there was one we left out until now, and we did that on purpose. Well, it's its own section, really. Yeah, and it's probably going to be my favorite part of this series. There's something about this that I really love, all the details to it, and how it's not what it seems, and then it is what it seems, and then maybe it's not what it seems. (laughs) (laughs) I thought about that on purpose, because really, it's the most compelling element possibly to this entire story. And you'll hear researchers say that as well, because it's something that it does make you think twice about this. Yes. After Jerry Palis is dancing all night with Mary and then giving her a ride home to the cemetery, this is actually the other story that has the most traction in the Resurrection Mary folklore. This is the story of the ghost in the gate. I came up with that title, did you? Oh, very nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? When I first heard about this story years ago, that is the one element that jumped out to me. It's like, wait a minute. Is there possibly a trace element, a piece of evidence left from Mary herself? Well, you know, that's my favorite kind of thing, trace evidence. That's what I loved (laughs) about the Delphos ring case. That's true. Yeah. And uh, that's something that I like about this story, too. Although I have since learned, since we started this show, 
and it's maybe something I've learned from you, is not to be so concerned with proof. You have to believe or not believe. Well, but yeah, I'm on my own journey. <laughs> well, you're just, you're not going to find it. You, it's convenient and inconvenient depending on what side of the fence of uh, belief you're on. I just feel like, you know, that proving moment, and this is something we're actually going to, our presentation in Ohio is going to be a little bit about this and mm. what's been going on with me. That moment of, oh, I, I, this is it. This proves it. This is irrefutable proof that yeah. of ghosts. And then it's like, you know what? Wherever you were on that spiritually and mentally, you should have already been there, whether that proof is real or not. Whether you can say definitively, if you're pushing that hard just so you can get someone else to believe it, or you're pushing that hard to get yourself to believe it, just relax. (laughs) That's my message. (laughs) But I'm I'm getting off track here. So let's get to this story. This is the story of Officer Pat Homa. You may have heard us refer to the town of Justice repeatedly in this series. Justice is a village southwest of Chicago, and Resurrection Cemetery is actually located there. That's where it is. It's in Justice, Illinois. It's a suburb. Yeah, it's a suburb. So we found a lot of different ways to describe this story, but probably one of the best ones was from the departed Richard T. Crow's book, Chicago's Street Guide to the Supernatural, a guide to haunted and legendary places in and near the Windy City. This book is still available for sale, and it's even free if you have Kindle Unlimited, which I do. I was thrilled. Mr. Crow is the ghost hunter and the tour guide we mentioned extensively in the series. We actually played an audio clip from him being a guest on the Eddie Schwartz show. Mm -hmm. But right now, we wanted to read you this little section of this book about the story of the ghost and the gate. One night, a police sergeant from the Justice Police Department, Pat Homa, was on patrol. It was August 10th, 1976, just after 10 p.m., a slow night, when his dispatcher came on the radio with an order to proceed to the main gates of Resurrection Cemetery. He was told that a phone call had just been placed to the police department. The message? A blonde woman in a white dress was locked inside the cemetery and roaming around. His first thought was that this was a hoax. Resurrection Cemetery lies across the street from the police department, The police are often the butt of a practical joke of this sort. Sergeant Homa was a responsible cop, so he went to check on the story. He arrived at the main entrance of the cemetery, got out of his squad car, walked up to the massive main gates, and began shining his flashlight back and forth amongst the tombstones. He saw no one inside. He was about to turn and leave, but his attention was captured by two bars on the left side gate. The bronze bars were bent apart, On the green patina of the bars, there were scorch marks, definitive finger and palm prints. The sergeant could not believe his eyes. If this were some kind of a hoax, it was a very elaborate and a very expensive one. It looked for all the world as though two hands with supernatural force had gripped and bent and squeezed these impressions into the bars, while at the same time, discharging a strange superhuman combustion that seared the metal. The bronze bars, although they were hollow, were certainly stronger than anything that could be bent by sheer human strength. No more than one can bend a penny by hand. The handprints burned into the metal made it more mysterious. After weeks of searching and researching, the sergeant came to the conclusion the bars could have been bent only by a paranormal happening. Perhaps it was the ghost so often rumored to have been seen at that very spot none other than Resurrection Mary. 
I learned about the account of the handprints on the cemetery gates through a teacher whose brother was on the Justice Fire Department. I tracked down the sergeant for an interview and photographed the bars. As word about this discovery leaked out into the community, I watched as the crowds began to come in greater and greater numbers on a daily basis to check out this wonder for themselves. I knew the cemetery officials were not happy with all the attention, and by the time spring of 1977 had rolled around, I contacted the Catholic Cemetery Board offering to buy those bars for my private collection. I wrote at the suggestion of a friend who was an archivist with the Archdiocese. They sent a curt letter back that the bars were not for sale under any circumstances. Cemetery employees blowtorched the bars, but it did nothing to the marks that were squeezed into the bronze, nor did it straighten them. Burning them black just made the marks more visible from a greater distance. The crowds continued to come in larger numbers. The cemetery reacted again. In October 1977, the bars disappeared. They were sawed out and sent away to a mill to be straightened out. They finally came back home again in December 1978, straight. The handprints were now obliterated. The bars found here today are the original bars welded back into place. They stand there with abnormal discoloration, painted in obscene Kelly green. The mysterious handprints of 1976 are now gone. Extreme measures were taken by cemetery officials to suppress, to cover up, and to destroy the evidence. But what the cemetery could not do was to confiscate all the photographs that had been taken. Photographs, color slides, even a videotape exists, showing that at one time some unique marks had been on two bars of the front gate that stands guard at Resurrection Cemetery. Paradoxically, the Catholic cemeteries of Chicago do not believe in this evidence for life after death. But for the unwashed masses, the only answer is that Resurrection Mary bent them. Whenever we cover a topic and we come across an author who's written a decent book on it, or there's significant eyewitnesses to an event, we'll often try to contact them for an interview and work it into the show. Uh, yeah, but a lot of times we can't get a hold of them or don't hear back in time or, you know, most likely they've heard our show and they have caller ID. <laughs> That's probably happened once or twice or, or yeah, probably more. But, <laughs> well, if you'd like to hear more of those types of interviews with people actively researching the paranormal and supernatural, UFO encrypted encounters, as well as people who have experienced it firsthand, all the kinds of stuff we like to hear about, then there's a podcast you need to check out called The Confessionals. Yeah, The Confessionals is a true story-based podcast where host Tony Merkel interviews guests about their projects or their experiences with the strange and unexplained. There are over 60 episodes available for download, which air every Saturday night. And just listen to some of the guests he's had on. L.A. Marzulli and Gary Wayne, who we mentioned in our series on Giants, author Jim Wilhelmson. And one I personally just can't wait to hear from, John Edmonds, owner of the Stardust <laughs> Ranch in Arizona. Oh, yeah, the Alien Slayer. Well, what is going on over there? We're all just going to have to tune in to find out, <laughs> which you can do by finding The Confessionals on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Alexa, and many other podcast players, or going to their website, theconfessionalspodcast.com. You can also support The Confessionals on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash theconfessionals, and patrons can listen to live interviews before they air and get access to live call-in shows where they can connect with Tony the host and other special guests. All right, let's go find out how you fight a gray. 
I wonder if he was using a real Hattori Hanzo blade. I don't think so. He didn't make those anymore. No. Hi, I'm Will. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Yes. I didn't know, I guess three weeks ago, I had mm. no idea who Richard T. Crow was. No. Since we found mm. that clip of him on the radio, and now that I've read some of his writings, I am one of his number one fans. Yeah. I just he's... love the way this guy works. <laughs> I love the way he writes. Yeah. His voice is amazing. Right. This was published in 2000. He passed away in 2012. He himself currently, as I've said before, now is buried at Resurrection Cemetery. Yeah. It would have been fantastic to attend one of his ghost tours. I can only imagine how amazing. Yeah, he been. had a he had a big bus, something I don't know, over 70 passengers, I think. Wow. And there were other ghost tours going on. There's a great remembrance story written by Ursula Bielski. It's a very nice tribute to him. And I mean, there was kind of a competition, you know, feeling to it because she was trying to get him to jot down these stories for posterity, these folkloric stories that he had collected. And he really wasn't interested in collaborating, I think, or working on a book, but he loved these stories and she did too. So she still, you know, had no animosity towards him, just always looked up to him and really revered him. And she's also a, an aficionado and an expert on uh, Chicago and Illinois paranormal lore as well. And and so he was uh, just a guy that just did it his own way, kind of old school. Just a great storyteller, though, at the heart of it. And one last thing I believe I read in her tribute to him is that he may have ended up with the bars or sections of them. It's funny you should say that because there's something here, and this is the counterpoint to Adam's point at the end of part two. Right. When he says the woman came up to him at the book signing, said she was the daughter of the guy who backed the truck into it, yeah. and that the cemetery had a stern face about it towards all the visitors about, right. no, that's not what happened, et cetera, et cetera. But behind it all, they were secretly laughing about how many people thought this was a ghost story. That's from the, the workman's view from the cemetery. Right. Yeah. And so we're going to keep that in mind as we continue to break this part of the story down a little bit. But one of the things that is interesting to me is when they said the bars were not for sale under any circumstances in what Richard T. Crow described as a curt letter. That, to me, says, it doesn't just say, no, you can't buy the bars. It says it with malice, with intention. Uh, it's, it's saying, it's well, saying, look, stop thinking this. It's trying extreme to prejudice, yes. Yeah, extreme prejudice. That's what I should say. It's saying, don't think this. Don't think about ghosts. Yeah. And to me, that's more of a red flag. Like, well, if they just sent a letter <laughs> that said, look, it's bronze. This yeah. was made a long time ago. It'll be almost impossible for us to find a replacement bar that matches the ones that are in there. Yeah. We got it. We need to keep them. We appreciate your interest. Blah, blah, blah. But what they said is, no, you can't have it and stop thinking about it. You know, <laughs> you, you can't have them. Well, They're yeah, never going to be for sale. It's not the... Meanwhile, yeah, the gate, that gate, yeah. and this was 2000, that gate is no longer there. Right. So it's down. So what you're saying about the possibility of him having them in his private collection, which who knows where that is now that he's passed away, I guess it would be with his kids. But it's just very... Interesting, because he also, I want to keep this in mind, in the Unsolved Mysteries episode that had Jerry Palis in it, they showed some footage, and it was only a few seconds before they cut away from it, of Jerry talking at a table about his story, about his encounter in 1939 at the Liberty Grove. And that footage, as far as we can tell, and from our research, was Richard T. Crow's footage. That was from an interview that Crow had done with Jerry Palis. Yeah. So where is that collection? We tend to come across, and it's tragedy to me, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but when we're doing these stories, we sometimes come across these experts in the field who have collected all this information, or researchers, I should say, 
who have collected all this information who have since passed away. And these collections just get lost. And it's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> well, he's, I think you first it's, got angry about the Summerton Man's collection that was burned in the shed. Yeah. What, the, uh, what is The police that? officer's uh, ex-wife. Yeah. And this stuff has cultural significance, especially his stuff. So, you know, I hope that his kids are taking care of it. Right. Could be on somebody's mantelpiece, in someone's basement. Stuff is found all the time that people don't know about until years later. Somebody digs it up. So who knows? But to your point, if you are an institution... The better thing is like, yeah, here are the bar. Take a look. These are the actual bars. You don't see any fingerprints, right? There's nothing here that looks like handprints. What you see is like some paint and some denting from the back step of a pickup truck. Well, yeah, you know, or, or something. How do you put or, fingerprints in molten metal? Well, we're going to get to that because we're going to take a, a further look at the possibility of what this might be. Yes, I'm getting ahead of myself here. I did want to say, though, for people who are interested, Dale Kazmarek from the ghostresearchsociety.org posted on YouTube this really amazing Super 8 footage yeah. of these bars not too long after the damage was done. I don't know if he shot it himself or he got it from one of his team members or where it came from, but it's pretty amazing. We've shared a link to it in our show notes, but you have to see it to understand. And thank God he got that footage because the fingerprints aren't there anymore. And he said, actually, you can't see them in that footage. And here's the description of that clip, by the way. Quote, the gates of Resurrection Cemetery, captured in August of 1976 with a Super 8 movie camera, showing the marks soon after the cemetery blowtorched the handprints off the bars, end quote. And then, Forrest, you went down through the comments on yeah, the YouTube video. Yeah. You found a pretty fascinating comment. I like people that, you know, were there. Yes. They say, you weren't there. Well, yes, I was there. So, <laughs> so somebody named 999777, that's their handle, posted yeah. YouTube comments. And it was refreshing not to see any really snarky, stupid ones here. Yeah. Uh, from three months ago. Right. I, this I clip's been up four years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but this it, comment was only three months old. But it's one of the better, I, I think just because of the film, that it is film and the lighting, it's really clear to see and much better than a lot of other clips you'll see. Yes. Uh, because there are, of course, other clips out there on YouTube about the bars. But Yeah, lots of people have taken pictures. Of course. And, and they were in varying states of repair. Right. Kind of downstream for this. But this was kind of right after it happened. Exactly. So listen to what this poster had to say, quote, what a shame you or whomever filmed the gate didn't see the handprints on the gate. I saw it one week before the church torched them out. I put my hands on the rails and was totally astonished. At least I saw this for myself. We'll never forget. End quote. Yeah. So they were amazing. there. And so what we're getting at is that we've all seen fender benders. We may even have dents in our car or... <laughs> In our own gates at home, if you've backed into it or something, we kind of know what that looks like. Even if you have a utility truck, I've seen this quite a bit when you've got something sticking out of the back of a, a pickup bed or a utility truck that's carrying pipe or something. And sometimes, you know, I've been on jobs or whatever that you, you back into something. Yeah. And it leaves a distinctive mark, depending on what it is. I've yeah. seen all kinds of stuff is what I'm saying. Yeah. That's very distinctive looking. This looks like somebody squeezed the bars with your hands at least from what we could see and uh, from what people have pointed out as well, it just doesn't look like a backing into type of accident. It looks like they were squeezed and, and maybe pulled apart in the fashion that you see people uh, in jail movies <laughs> clinging to the bars and rattling them. Again, you can't dust for prints on this thing. I hope I wasn't alluding to that in the end of part two. Yeah. <laughs> but it is a form of imprint, a close encounter of the second or third kind. I don't know. The ranking is for ghosts. Maybe Rob Cake and Dallas. Yeah. 
but it does look these circular little imprints and like a handprint as far as the discoloration goes, which is also strange because as we're going to kind of explain here in a second, it just doesn't fit with metalworking or metal repair. Here's another, also another angle on it. Author and ghost hunter Troy Taylor, who we've cited quite a bit, who has the website prairieghost.com, which now seems like it's uh, been redirected to American Hauntings Podcast, which is a uh-huh. podcast that Troy has with his co-host, Cody. And Cody and Troy are doing this show that is pretty great. So if you want to check out a cool new podcast about ghosts, check out American Hauntings podcast. But anyway, he pointed out that the sightings of Mary were rampant in the 70s and 80s. And apparently the cemetery was undergoing major renovations during that time. And he made a suggestion, which is I love this, was that maybe that was making Mary restless. Mm -hmm. And maybe those bent bars could be a sign of her angst at being trapped in there while her home was being remodeled without her consent. (laughs) Anyway, Uh, he goes on to say, Richard Crowe said this as well to a certain extent, but this is just another angle on it. Quote, The bars were removed to discourage onlookers, but taking them out had the opposite effect, and soon people began asking what the cemetery had to hide. Mm -hmm. The events allegedly embarrassed local officials, so they demanded that the bars be put back into place. Once they were returned to the gate, they were straightened and painted over with green paint so that the blackened area would match the other bars. Unfortunately, though, the scorched areas continued to defy all attempts to cover them, and the twisted spots where the handprints had been impressed remained obvious until just recently when the bars were removed for good. So that's the analysis there. And, you know, you've got this camp's going to say, well, the truck backed into it. And by the way, Adam's encounter with the woman at the book signing is not the only time that people talked about this truck backing into it. There's two other articles, published newspaper articles, that cite that as having been what happened. And I'm going to tell you right now, by way of an explanation, that I can see this happening. I mean, I can see a grounds worker backing into the truck. They're bent, and it's like, "Uh uh-oh, what do we do? And then people who maybe don't have a lot of metallurgical experience come out and do all kinds of wacky stuff to try to fix it, and they only make it worse. I still don't fully understand how they would get handprints in them. It just doesn't make sense. Now, well, now, there, yeah. and here's a guy, there was a cemetery worker named Chet Kowakowski, who we've mentioned before. In a Chicago Tribune article from October 25th, 1992, he said a front-end loader truck that backed into the gates while doing sewer work bent the bars. According to Kowakowski, the grounds workers tried to restore the bars to their original position by heating them with a blowtorch and bending them. The imprint in the black and metal, he said, was of a worker's glove. However, if that is true, then why haven't the marks reverted back to their green-colored state that is caused by the oxidation of the bronze when exposed to the elements? It has been over 20 years, and to this day, and this was before they were removed, the area where the handprints were discovered is still a blackened area. It comes through. That, you know, that's a common Yeah, it's like the thing. blood on the wall you can't paint over, <laughs> well, the face in the concrete floor, uh, right? Well, it's funny you just mentioned that. I just looked this up just now, actually. The Belmez Faces. Yes, the Belmez uh, Faces. And if you don't know, it's a, we'll have an a alleged, maybe if I can remember to write this down, an alleged paranormal phenomenon in a private house in Spain starting around the year 1971 when the residents claim that uh, these faces, I mean, it's, it could be pareidolia, but they look a lot like faces yeah. and portraits. I mean, like busts with heads of people. And no matter what you do to the concrete, the faces keep leaching back in. Hey, that's a very common, uh, well, 
I would say it's very common. That's often heard in a lot widely of stories. Widely reported. Widely yes. reported in that uh, something. Right. They, these things are all not very common <laughs> to begin with. But I've heard that quite a bit when uh, there might be a mark that you try to cover up and it refuses, much like, again, one of my favorite stories, the handprint on the lady's ankle who went to Greyfriars. Yes. felt grabbed there. And from then on, that handprint never tanned. Yeah. Things leave a mark. It burns, actually. Gets uh, burnt more easily. Uh And I've said this before in a prior episode now, as many episodes we've done, I can't remember which one, but my great-grandmother briefly lived in a famous haunted house in North Carolina called the House in the Horseshoe, Uh. which was briefly a Civil War hospital. And during her time there, she said there were bloodstains on the walls that they painted over repeatedly, and they would always come back through the paint. Oh, boy. (laughs) So that's the House in the Horseshoe. Look it up. Yeah. Anyway, let's analyze this a little bit before we move on from this. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm all for rational explanations. We've even spoken to Chicagoans who don't believe the gate story themselves. Mark Rudnicki, the guy from the Unsolved Mysteries episode who we had on during our last show when he was introduced by Not Robert Stack, he said that he thought maybe someone put some acid on a pair of gloves and marked them up late at night. But one of the things about Astonishing Legends is we don't like to take things at face value without looking into them a bit, whether they're rational or crazy far out stories. Now, as Adam Selzer said, and has been corroborated by other investigations, there was the grounds worker, and he has simply backed into the gate and did the damage. Now, it's completely plausible, like I said a minute ago, that they made it worse by trying to fix it. Mm-hmm. However, it just so happens we have someone with metalworking experience in the Astonishing Research Corps. His name is Michael. Why don't you tell our listeners what Michael had to say about the idea of these bars being bent back into their proper position and leaving handprints? Right. So as you know, we use the App River to collect and cull a bunch of information that people are, are putting up, and they can post stuff and exchange chats and pictures. And Michael weighed in on this whole section about the gate. And he's a metal worker. He's got a lot of experience in this. So this is his statement in one of the comments under one of the listings, I believe, in this passage that we thought like, man, if this isn't a great testimonial, I don't know what is. So to quote him, Michael says, I work as an industrial mechanic slash machine operator, and I find it very hard to believe that anyone would try and bend the heated metal bars with their hands because of the amount of heat needed to change the yield strength of the bars enough to be able to bend them. Sure, you could bend them while they're cold, but he specifically says they blowtorch the bars before bending them. With my thick blacksmith gloves, I would still not bend the bars by hand. I'd use a wrench or some other tool. So I get that because it's like even with the thick gloves, like you wouldn't try and work on it using your hands unless you're trying to make more prints or something. You know, well, like, and the, the other thing is like, the, the, that's the other thing is the official explanation is still sticking with using gloved hands to try and bend the bars back into shape. Yeah. That tells me that up close, it really did look like there were tiny handprints in the metal. And how do you explain the fingerprint? I mean, I can see if you're wearing leather gloves, I can see how leather and molten metal, I guess, would leave a texture. Sure. But fingerprints. Well, as far as the fingerprints, like I said, I was joking earlier that you could dust. Yeah. Boy, if it was, you know, done in another decade, maybe you'd get a hit on that. But I think the idea here is that, yeah, not like you'd see, you know, you look down, you see fingerprints in your own hands, but finger indentations. Look where your fingerprints are. Those pads on on the ends of your fingers there, there were indentations there that made it look like they were not from thick padded gloves, like welder's gloves. Right. So 
you know, yeah, they were smaller. Yeah. They were they yeah. were smaller, like a woman's hands. That's the other strange thing. So, uh, so but, why the cover up? <laughs> that's that's the question because yeah. now we're talking about what are the reasons, and there's right. probably lots of good ones. I'm I'm not acting like I don't know what they might be, but you know, think about the reasons that the archdiocese might not want this story to be perpetuated about this ghost and the bending of the bars. And so why would you come up with a cover-up story for this, you think? Well, I think they, uh, I mean, who knows? It's like one of those things an institution does where they're trying to avoid a small annoyance. And I'm not going to say white lie, but you know what I'm saying? Like try to skirt a little bit in a very innocent fashion, but it makes it worse. <laughs> it just, you know, they weren't thinking this through. Somebody just thought, well, just, you know, just tell them the, the, a truck backed into it. And it's like, well, people have already seen this thing. You know, it's been there a week. There are other factors which have gotten people in trouble. Sergeant Pat Homa, well, uh, he did get in trouble with this. But my point is that this is a call he responded to in the middle of the night. So are they saying that they were doing sewer work late in the day and uh, they backed into it? And maybe that's what he was mistaking. But he was called to the gates, and that's when he saw that. Right, late that at was night. because someone was driving by at 10.30. Exactly. And saw a woman in white with right. blonde hair walking around who seemed to be trapped inside the cemetery. Exactly. That's why he was called, and police calls are recorded. They're monitored. There is a log of when officers are called to, you know, what incoming calls and, and what the results were, and it's recorded. So that should be somewhere. I don't know if you'd ever be able to find that, but obviously he's a real guy. You know what I'm saying? He really went to go well, investigate this call. To exactly, the and I had some question about that, and that's what led us to find that passage in Richard Crowe's book. I just wanted to make sure, you know, we try to get back to a primary source whenever we can, and I wanted to make sure that Pat Homa was a real person. And that goes to believing Richard Crowe was telling the truth when he said he met and interviewed and he explained the whole story. I knew somebody in the fire department. They got me connected with Pat Homa, told me who Pat Homa was. I sat down with Pat Homa. I believe that Crowe did that. I believe that makes Pat Homa a real person. I believe that Pat told the story as he believed it to be true. Now, right. if the gate was damaged by trucks and then fixed and blowtorched and all that, that's entirely possible. Those two things could coexist. Because if he came there in the middle of the night, he's being led in by this story where they said there was a ghost in the cemetery. How about this? It's like a lot of things we look at. Maybe the gates were backed into by a truck. Right, right. Maybe this had nothing to do with the ghost at all. Still, we got someone driving by at 1030 who saw an apparition trapped inside the cemetery. Yeah. And this guy came out to see it. Maybe his imagination and everyone's imaginations ran away with them when they saw the gates or they heard what he found at the gates. Doesn't change the fact that someone drove by and saw a ghost inside the cemetery, yet another case of Resurrection Mary. Just because a part of a story might have a mundane explanation, it doesn't mean the whole story does and vice versa. So there's all kinds of ways that like parts of the story could be true, parts of them could not be true. It could all be fantastic. It could all be mundane. Right. But you have to look at the big picture when it comes to all of that. Now, you talked about Homa getting in trouble, and this here's the interesting thing about this. There was a TV show on from 1980 to 1984 that not very many people are going to remember. I remember it, mm -hmm. but I'm old, and you're older. <laughs> well, uh, no, this would be big in a high school. It was uh, a very popular show. For you, it was high school. Uh, I yes, was junior high, thank right. you. But the, uh, the idea was that there was no internet, of course, so what was on TV, everybody watched. Yeah. This show was called That's Incredible. We're going to play a little soundbite here. Ryan, can you cue that up? <laughs> 
that show was great. It was all just <laughs> kinds of crazy stuff. In fact, there's a clip. You should go look up Tiger Woods on That's Incredible. He's, oh, on, he's five years old. And they're talking about how great a golf player he yeah, is. Yeah, he's very cute. Anyway, yeah. Homa apparently went on this show, and he told this story, and supposedly he was fired from the police department for that. Well. Although, yeah. Adam Selzer said they could not find a record of him having been fired for that. Yeah. Um, so... It's, uh, you know. it's hard to say, but again, extrapolating from what we know about organizations, and this is what's interesting about, we've often talked about this, and, and <laughs> it's funny, some people really think it's silly when we do, but organizations and how they react to paranormal situations, you know, like the Queen Mary, it's like, uh, yeah, come on, it's haunted, we got a haunted room, you want to go see a haunted room? It's 10 bucks. We'll give you some treats and have a tour guide. And uh, yeah, come on aboard the Queen Mary and take a look at our haunted stuff. Other fancy hotels in Norway, perhaps. Like, no, no, we do, we do not have anything that's haunted here. Please stop telling people. Well, oh, by the you way, know, but, the <laughs> most haunted room on the yeah. Queen Mary, one of our listeners has posted this on our Facebook group, yeah. has been made into an actual stateroom and you can now stay in it now. Oh, there you go. The one that they used to not let people stay in. Uh-huh. Well, so. we'll see what happens there. Maybe it, maybe it calmed down. These things do also kind of seem to run in cycles. So, so who knows? But in this case... What's interesting is that possibly there might be something about her story or the fact that it's a ghost story, or like you said, a combination of all this stuff, just the, the looky-loos and all the people showing up. All this is somehow distasteful. Maybe somebody out there knows, uh, is a, as an expert in Catholic dogma and maybe can enlighten us about, is there a problem with the Resurrection Mary story just on the surface? Because I know, you know, ghosts, again, may be seen as souls that are in purgatory, that have to wander until the final judgment. They're not at rest, or they did not receive last rites. You know, it was an unexpected accident, and so I don't know what's going on there, but it might be an inconvenient story or just something where it's hard to explain or they don't want to explain it. Or it might simply just be, again, a number of looky-loos. So in this story, I think it's, uh, it's just something that you have to give a second look to because I think the Catholic Church did. Well, that's going to wrap up part three of our series on Resurrection Mary. We'll be back next week with part four, where we'll talk about parallels that Mary has to other ghost stories from all over the world. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Will. And I'm Lauren. And we give permission to Astonishing Legends. Now let's, let's get, get back to the show. <laughs> <laughs> to use our voices however they see fit. <laughs> Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. 
Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia 